Today's scripture reading is going to be from Psalm 23. When you've turned there, would you rise for the reading of God's word? Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. join me in a word of prayer real quick. Dear God, thank you for this gathering of believers of our family today. I pray that um, your word fills this place for God, that the word rests in our hearts today, Father, and let your word be proclaimed and rest in our hearts as we meditate today and leave um, for the rest of the week. So in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I see a lot of new faces here, so we're very happy to have you. Um, for those of you who have not been here for the past few weeks, we have been going through um, a summer of psalms. And so we've been going each week and looking at a different psalm. And today we are concluding that series in one of the most well-known psalms in Psalm 23. And so whether you are a follower of Christ or not, the words of the psalm that were just read probably ring familiar to you. Psalm 23 has been used a lot in our culture. It's been read at funerals. It's been used in presidential speeches. It's even been used in Coolio's song, Gangster's Paradise, in which he says, and I quote, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. I did debate rapping the rest of the sermon, but I will spare you from that today. But Needless to say, uh, the imagery in Psalm 23 um, is very familiar um, to people, as a lot of people use these words a lot, whether that's at funerals or in song lyrics. And as we go through the psalm today, though, I hope that we can come to a solid understanding of what this psalm is communicating, and particularly in conveying the confidence and assurance that the Lord's care provides to the Christian. And so as we go through this psalm, I hope that you'll see how God provides for the immediate needs, the ongoing needs of the um, believer, and also for the eternal needs. And so looking here at the opening of this psalm, we see that this is a psalm of David, who is going to be our author for today's psalm. And so David was known to have an intimate and close relationship with the Lord in the Old Testament, and he has been cited as being a man after the Lord's heart. But also, David was a shepherd, and he tended to sheep on a continual basis. This was one of his main occupations growing up. And it's not super clear when this psalm was written, if this was in the beginning of David's life, in the middle of David's life, or near the end of David's life. But as you see here in Psalm 23, the words here ring true no matter what stage of life that David is in. But we can understand that he's translating his real lived experience as a shepherd to that of his relationship with the Lord and that of his, the Lord's relationship with him. And so he starts here in verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
David starts off with an exclamation, boldly and proudly proclaiming that the Lord is his shepherd. And David is not communicating that the Lord is his shepherd exclusively, but rather his emphasis on the Lord is my shepherd. And the Lord here is all capitalized. It's capital L-O-R-D. And so if you're unfamiliar uh, with the Bible, whenever that is indicated there, that is referring to God's name as Yahweh, which means the great I am. And so what David here is saying is that it is the Lord is my shepherd. The great I am is my shepherd. The great God Almighty is my shepherd. The creator of heaven and earth is my shepherd. And this concept of a deity as a shepherd um, was very common in the Near East and is also very common in the Bible. We see this as early as Genesis 48 where Jacob is reflecting on his fathers and he's seeing how God has intentionally shepherded the life through Abraham, through Isaac, and then to him as Jacob. But then this imagery was also uh, applied to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we can actually trace this deity claim through Scripture. And I want to take a moment for us to do that real quick. So we'll first start in the Old Testament. If you will turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel 34. And we'll be in just a few verses here. But I think this is really good to just see this deific claim um, that's translated throughout Scripture. And so it's Ezekiel 34, starting in verses 11 and 12. And then I'll jump to 23 and 24. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And then jump down into verses 23 through 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And so we see that God is declaring that he will send a shepherd to shepherd his people, and through, he's using his servant David, but then through David's line, he will bring about another shepherd that will eternally shepherd his flock. And so I want you now to turn to John chapter 10 to see the fulfillment of this imagery that is predicted here in Ezekiel. So John chapter 10, starting in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so... You might want to keep your finger here. We'll uh, refer to it a few times uh, throughout the sermon. But um, what Jesus is communicating here in being the good shepherd is that he is the fulfillment, the culmination of this imagery that started in Ezekiel 34. He is the good shepherd. And we see there in that passage in John 10, there are some references to other shepherds, those that claim to be shepherds, but then when danger comes, they'll immediately flee. 
but he is the good shepherd. He is there to shepherd his flock. He will be there and even to lay down his life for his sheep and protect them at all costs. And so we see this imagery here as a deity, as a shepherd, but then what is the shepherd shepherding? His flock. And so when the Bible refers to sheep, it's commonly referring to God's people. And as a shepherd is to their sheep, God is to his people. There's this book by William Philip Keller. It's called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. And in his experience as a shepherd in uh, East Africa, he compares the imagery that's used here in Psalm 23 to that of the roles and responsibilities that a shepherd would normally do to take care of their flock. And so we'll we'll visit some of that imagery here very shortly. But just to give some background on sheep, just as creatures in this world, sheep are not as pretty or as... Um, elegant as they may seem in, um, in television. They're not these beautiful white um, you know, creatures that bleed around happily. They're actually pretty ugly creatures. They're helpless. They um, need the care of the shepherd in order to survive. They're prone to wander off and get lost. They are very difficult to train. They're not like dogs you can just say, sit. They're very difficult to train. They're easily frightened and confused. They can't see very well. They don't have very good depth perception. They can't hear very well. They're completely dependent on the shepherd to guide and care for them. And in fact, as God's children, we tend towards some of those exact same paths. We're prone to turn our backs on God. We get lost in the busyness of this world. We're stubborn under instruction. We're anxious and worried about this life. We can't see God completely for who he is. We can't hear him and take him at his word. We need him for almost every avenue of our lives. And yet God is still our good shepherd. He seeks to provide intentional, thoughtful, and loving care towards us. And after making this bold claim, David also says, I shall not want. And that translation comes from the ESV, but other translations may have this as, I lack nothing, or there is nothing I lack, or I have everything I need. So it's not as if David is saying, the Lord is my shepherd, but I don't want him at all. No, it's actually a statement that he's making in in light of the fact that the Lord is his shepherd. It's a statement of contentment. He is saying that the Lord is providing everything for him. He does, there's nothing he lacks. He has everything he needs. He's confident the Lord is going to sustain him and care for him fully in the same way that a shepherd tends to their flock of sheep. A sheep to their shepherd is an intimate bond that David is going to be well familiar with and he'll use to illustrate his um, relationship to the Lord. Um, because of his lived experience there as a shepherd. He knows and understands the tender care and affections that a good shepherd will have towards his flock. He remembers the need the sheep have of a shepherd and what kindness it is to have one that is skillful and faithful and confident in the work that he does. And we'll see how he illustrates that in the Lord providing for him here in these next two verses. And so in verses 2 and 3, David transitions to speak on four examples on how the Lord provides for him. He talks about how the Lord provides him rest and comfort. Um, He talks about how he satisfies his every need, how he guides them to wise paths, and how he rejuvenates their innermost being. And so starting in verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And so in William Philip Keller's book, In Him Taking Care of Sheep, 
I mean, as I mentioned earlier, he states that sheep are not creatures that can sit still. They're always fearful. They're always skittish. They run away in the first phase of trouble. It's very, very hard for them to rest. And in fact, um, a sheep cannot physically rest unless a few criteria are met. They need to be free from all fear. They need to be free from friction with others. Um, they need to be free from any pests or their wool needs to be well tended to. And they also need to be free from hunger and, and thirst. And so the shepherd needs to go through tremendous effort to make sure that their flock is well tended to so that the sheep is able to rest. The sheep needs to ensure that there's no creatures around or storms in the path that could frighten the sheep and make it run away. He needs to order the sheep appropriately so they don't butt up against one another and create conflict. He needs to wash and shear their wool so it doesn't become too heavy or too dirty that it annoys and bothers them. And he needs to provide them with ample food and access to water to ensure that they're well tended to. And the, the shepherd isn't forcing this rest to happen on to the sheep. Rather, the, the shepherd is taking care of the physical felt needs of the sheep in order so that they may be able to rest. And then the still waters that is referred to here can um, be many different forms of water, but I think this is most commonly seen as a small pond or a flowing river, a gentle kind of water source that is there. And so this water would have a sort of cooling draught to it that allows the sheep to have comfort and refreshment when they partake in those waters. And so as believers, I feel like we can relate to the sheep in finding it difficult, and, uh, difficult to find comfort and rest, especially in the midst of fear, conflict, annoyances, and even our own daily needs. And so we think of sleep as one form of rest, but also the rest of um, anxiety and worry that is in our culture, being in a restless state of unknown, worrying about what is to come. But like a shepherd who tends to the needs of his sheep to ensure that they can rest, our good shepherd tends to those areas in our lives to ensure that we can rest. The good shepherd provides us relief. He gives us our daily bread and he gives us the comfort of his presence so that we are able to rest in him. He also made it clear in his ministry that thirsty souls of men and women can only be fully satisfied when their capacity and thirst for spiritual life is fully quenched by him. As our good shepherd, he would come as a guide and as a counselor. He would lead us to the things of Christ and he would make us see that a life in Christ is the only life that is a satisfying life. Next verse, starting in verse 3, he says, he restores my soul. And so this is some interesting imagery here, but for those intimately acquainted with sheep, there is this term called cast sheep or a cast down sheep. And what a cast sheep is, it's, it's when a sheep falls down on its back and its legs are flailing up, uh, up in the air and it's not able to get up. I demonstrate, but I don't want to get on the floor. <laughs> but it's struggling to stand up without any success. It's going to may bleat for help, but it mostly just lies there frustratingly trying to get up and fear starts to kick in. And the way of sheep can become cast um, can be for a variety of different reasons. Its wool can be too heavy and weighing them down, causing them to roll over. It may go down into some narrow hills or rounded hills that cause it easier to, to roll over. It might be too fat, allowing its uh, friction to kind of go um, into the hole. But when a sheep is cast, um, physiologically, the sheep is unable to get up. It physiologically cannot get back on its four legs. 
And so gases start to build up in the sheep's body. They start to expand there. The, it opens up their blood vessels. It cuts off the circulation to their extremities, to their legs. And within minutes, the sheep can die if it is cast. The sheep is then without any hope. They are in pure terror. They can die within minutes unless they become uncast. And the only way a sheep can become uncast is if the shepherd comes back and turns them over. And then they restore their blood flow back and then send them on their way. And so the shepherd needs to make sure he keeps a keen eye on his flock, ensuring that the sheep do not wander down dangerous paths, making sure that their wool is sheared off appropriately so it doesn't become too heavy, um, so they aren't weighed down, and controlling their diet so they don't become too fat and accidentally roll over. It's a careful eye that also necessitates planning ahead to ensure that his flock does not become cast in any way. And in many ways, we too are like the cast sheep. We too are often without hope, without Jesus. We look for the comfortable paths that allow us to live our cozy lifestyles. We let the worries and troubles of life weigh us down and we overindulge in the pleasures of this world. We stay fixed in our sinful habits, and when they have their intended consequences that sin does, we're in a desperate state looking for any hope to be able to get us out of these consequences that we've found ourselves in. But God restores these patterns of our life by intentionally challenging our lifestyles. He restores our soul. When we are caught in the midst of our sin, he comes in with his presence and restores us and returns us and shows us all the way back to him. And he continues to restore our soul through the provision of his word. He's given us his word so that we can study and meditate on it day and night. He's given us prayers so that we can communicate with the Lord and cast our worries and anxieties on him. And he's also given us community to engage and support us in our walks with him. God renews our lives daily, giving us new hearts to worship him and new desires to chase after him. He restores our soul and frees us from the captivity of our sin and leads us to paths towards him. Which leads us into the next portion. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So again, back to sheep. Sheep are creatures of habit. If left to themselves, they will just follow the same trails until they become dead. They'll eat the same grass all the way down to its root. They'll graze the same pastures and become, until they become a desert waste. And because of this behavior, the continual habitual ground that they walk on can become infested with parasites, with bugs, with death and other diseases that can quickly disseminate among the flock and destroy them. And so the sheep cannot be left on the same ground for, for too long. And it's the responsibility of the shepherd to make sure that they're shifting them from new pasture to new pasture periodically. The shepherd then needs to keep a careful eye on the sheep and the pastures that they're on, but also must determine the best new pastures to set them on, ones that have good sources of water, good sources of uh, food for them to eat. That's all for the health and well-being of his sheep. The shepherd must lead his sheep in the right way towards those pastures, but that makes sure that they're also safe from any new predators. And so the welfare and the safety of the sheep depend on the careful eye and watch of the shepherd. In Isaiah 
53.6, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And so just as sheep innately will blindly, habitually, and foolishly follow one another along the same little trails until they're completely destroyed, we as believers cling to the same habits that we see ruin our lives. We insist on staying within our own sinful habits and daily patterns out of comfort, and oftentimes those habits lead to our own destruction. But in all the glory and the grace that God provides us, we as sheep are still turning to our own methods and plans to be able to solve things. God offers us everything that we need in order to walk in paths, but yet we still try to come up with our own way instead of turning to Him. So how often do we look internally at ourselves and discover what problems we're trying to solve on our own versus leading them to God to help us? And the problem is most of us oftentimes don't want to come to those better paths, be led in those um, paths of righteousness. We don't want to follow. But amidst the confusion in our hearts, our good shepherd says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so Jesus made it clear that the cost of following him would involve constant denial of self, but that the reward would lead to the discovery of fresh new pastures filled with abundant life and holiness in their walk with him. God wants us all to be able to move on with him. He desires for us to walk with him. He wants it for our best interests. And this is an eternal blessing that the Good Shepherd desires to set us on those paths of righteousness. And so these first few verses here, in verses 2 and 3, we see that he's highlighted the intentionality of our Good Shepherd and how he provides every need uh, we could possibly ask for. He provides solutions to our problems. He satisfies our daily needs. He gives us rest and comfort and provides clear ways for us to continue to walk with him. But as we saw in John 10, if you still have your finger there, you can look at it. The ultimate care of a shepherd is them laying down their life for their sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in another passage, in 1 John 3.16, it says, we see that we know that this is what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so the ultimate form of love is Jesus Christ laying down his life for us, and that the good shepherd is one that lays down his life for his sheep. This is the supreme portrait of the good shepherd. Jesus Christ, as our good shepherd, came and lived a perfect life and died for the sins of this world so that we may have eternal life through him. He took care of all of our needs in that one event, laying down his life, giving us the ultimate form of love, but also the ultimate portrait of what a good shepherd looks like. And through that event, he continues to provide ongoing care for the believer as well. And we'll see that here in the next few verses. In verses 4 and 5, David maintains a spirit of worship and praise for God as, and turns now to address the shepherd directly. And so he goes from exalting the wonderful God that uh, he has been in relationship with as now is entering into more of an intimate discussion with him. And we know this because we can see the pronouns of I and you start to pop into the discussion, inferring something of a more intimate discussion that's being driven by deep affection and reverence by David. 
And so we read, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And so some translations, such as the ESV, has this as the valley of the shadow of death. But other translations, and even in the ESV, you might have a footnote there that translates this to deep darkness. And so the word for shadow of death may mean deep darkness or dark shadows. And this isn't a literally a valley that's filled with death and darkness and you can't see anything. But rather what it's inferring to is an environment that's perilously threatening, a very dark environment that has a lot of danger associated with it. And so sheep being led on paths by the shepherds will take them through various terrains in order to get into those paths of righteousness. And some of those paths are going to take them to high mountaintops, to higher countries where the pastures are greener, where the sun is there and able to um, be able to have better access to water so that the sheep can graze themselves around that pasture. But then in order to get to those high mountaintops, they have to go through a valley in order to make it to those high mountaintop experiences. And so they need to go through deep rivers, darker environments, and tougher terrains. And the sheep can easily be frightened by this, um, if not for the good shepherd. But the shepherd knows the path in order to get to those better places. He knows the best way to get to those mountaintops. He has intimate knowledge of the terrain and know what's the best course for them to be able to take. He leads his flock persistently yet gently though to reach those mountaintops and he remains with them throughout it all. He is with them always. And similarly, the Lord may lead us on our own paths of darkness, paths that are challenging, that have disappointments, frustrations, discouragements, ones that are filled with difficult days, difficult months, difficult years. But yet, all of those paths that he walks us through are all be able to lead us into a higher ground with God. And I'm not saying that this is a better standing with God, but rather they're moving beyond the common crowd to a more intimate and deeper experience with him. And we could all probably attest to personal great mountaintop experiences that we've had with God and also that those exact same mountaintop experiences were preceded by some sort of walk through darkness, through some sort of trial before we reached it. It should also be noted that it says, I shall walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Not that we stop in the valley permanently or that we die in the valley, but we walk through it. And even in those deep Values, those difficult moments and those hard to recognize paths towards God, our good shepherd is with us, comforting us in our fear and distress through that and promising to be with us always. At the end of our services, we read uh, the Great Commission every week. Um, and I was reminded recently that at our men's retreat that we can great place a great missional aspect on these verses, and it's certainly a missional passage, but I think we can easily forget the comforting line from Jesus near the end of it, where he says, again, I am with you always to the end of ages. Our good shepherd is with us always in the high mountaintops and the low valleys and the walks of light and through the walks of darkness. He is with us always. Do you know what it is like to have him with you, to have a quiet acceptance in the face of that adversity? 
And what comfort it is to know that God is walking with us even in our darkness to provide us with that courage. Moving forward, it says, your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. And so in uh, the Middle East where it was more common for shepherds, they use a rod and staff to be able to guide their sheep. Those are the essential instruments of a shepherd's work. They identify who the shepherd is. There's no other occupation that is out there that requires both a rod and a, a staff. These instruments identify that this person is a shepherd. It's uniquely designed for them to be able to take care of their flock. In William Philip Keller's book and other commentators would say, the utility of the rod and staff were to protect and to guide the flock respectively. He would use the rod to ward off any predators that would come and attack the flock, and he would use the staff to help guide the flock. And so in Scripture, we actually see one instance of this where it's inferred that David is utilizing um, a rod to defend his uh, flock, and it's in 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 35. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it um, for us today. But uh, David is recounting an incident to King Saul and his experience as a shepherd. And he's saying, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. And so the striking of the lion is what is inferred for David to be using his rod as a weapon, as something of a symbol of strength and protection for his sheep. And then there's the staff, which is a longer, slender stick. If you've seen Toy Story, you might remember little Bo Peep, and she has her little uh, hook uh, staff there that she uses to reel Woody in or reel in the sheep as well. And so that's exactly what we're referring to here with the staff. It's a long, slender stick with a hooked tip um, that's over there. And so why the shepherd utilizes a staff is it would utilize it to help guide his flock. When his sheep would start to go astray, that hooked end would wrap around the sheep's neck and pull them back into the flock. And in fact, the, sh uh, the shepherd will train the sheep as well to make sure that they know that this staff is in that they know that by the presence of the staff, the shepherd is with them. And so they'll train the sheep that when they get through that lost, uh, into that terrain, those valleys of the shadow of death, those deep, dark environments, just putting the staff around the neck of the sheep just calms the sheep down from all of the anxiety and fear. And they can say to themselves, okay, the staff is with me. The, the shepherd is with me. I know where I'm going. I'm comforted by this. And so based off the real-life utilization of a rod and staff, along with those allusions in, in Scripture, we see that the rod and staff symbolize some sort of strength and authority for the rod and some sort of guidance um, for the staff. And so the rod and the staff help to cover the, the felt needs of the sheep in providing them protection from enemies and, and guidance through those pastures and through those valleys. And so since the rod and staff are unique instruments to the shepherd, these instruments that David alludes to conveys his comfort in, in the Lord's strength and in his guidance. God is continuing to give David strength and guidance even as he enters into these perilous environments that he's walking through, through the deep trials in his faith, and as he seeks to know more of God with each passing moment. 
And our God is a God of power and of comfort. He is authoritative and he is trustworthy. He is strong, yet he is tender-hearted. He is powerful enough to help us through our trials, and he is comforting to empathize with us in our trials. God's strength and comfort is unrivaled, and yet how often do we lean on him for strength and comfort? When we enter in through our own valleys of darkness, we can tend to rely on our own strength or on the strength of others to help get us through it. And while that only takes us so far, God then gives us his strength to be able to get through it. It is only through his strength we're able to make it through those valleys. Or consider how often we consider new job opportunities, new opportunities of career advancement to chase after. And how often do we enter into prayer with God and ask him for his guidance in those decisions versus relying on our own knowledge and our own guidance to direct our paths. The rod and staff are comforting to the sheep as it showed that the shepherd was with them. And likewise, we should grasp the need of that God is one of infinite strength and guidance to comfort us in the midst of our own trials as well. And then as he moves on here into verses 5 and 6, the image of the shepherd and to their sheep has sort of run its course and concluded, and he transitions into one of a host and their, and their guests. But um, this is evidenced here by some new imagery that we see. We see a table that's being prepared, some oils, some, some cups, and the presence of the Lord's house. And see this transition in imagery. But the main idea and the main theme of the psalm is still one of confidence and assurance. And David still maintains that theme as he enters into this new imagery here. David still lacks nothing. All of his needs are tended to. But this imagery of a host to their guest actually may elevate the intimacy that David is articulating that he has with the Lord. And so he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so as a gracious host, the Lord tends to David's every need, showering him with personal care, protection, and, and blessing. And as guests in someone's home, as most of us can relate to, um, we're dependent on the host to be able to provide for our needs. And so when we are invited to someone's house, as most of us will partake in fellowship afterwards, we don't just enter into their home, go into their pantry and fridge, raid it, and take whatever we want to eat. Instead, we, we wait to be offered the food and the drink. We are dependent on the host to serve us. And likewise, David is likening this experience to his utter dependence on God to be able to provide for him. And so we see here the next verse where he, or the next phrasing he uses is, you anoint my head with oil. And so we see this instance of the use of oil that David is an esteemed and honored guest at the Lord's table. An ancient uh, custom of hospitality was for the host to anoint oil on his guests to show them um, respect for the guests that they would be there. And so some of you may recall during our study of Luke that Jesus actually is uh, washed with oil by someone. Their their, the oil is washed with the hair and they wash him and he rebukes the Pharisees that didn't greet him in the same manner and show him that same honor and respect when he was a guest in their houses as well. 
And so David here is not just any guest, he's a special guest. He's showcasing the deep, intimate, and personal relationship he has with um, the Lord here at this, at this table. And he continues to exclaim of the Lord's um, provision and graciousness in declaring that his, his cup overflows. And so the Lord is not only just providing the needs for David, but he's supplying them in abundance, especially in the midst of his difficult times. And in Christ, we have overflowing joy, overflowing love, and overflowing grace that comes from our Good Shepherd. We're filled with the presence of His Holy Spirit who gives us more than what we ask for, more than what we need as well. And this imagery of a cup overflowing just shows the bountifulness that the Lord is providing for, for David. Um, and then, oh, we also have our in the presence of the enemies as well, but that's also a particularly a striking phrase here that we see. How is God preparing a table for David in the presence of enemies? Is God inviting all of his enemies there so that uh, David can reconcile with them? What is this um, presence of enemies he's getting at? But as we understand David's life, it was an unrelenting battle. He was hated by his older brothers. He was a fugitive, hunted by King Saul. And he, when he inherited the, um, his kingship, he was given a divided nation, giving so many enemies towards him that hated him. And so David was under constant strife and constant pressure. But yet the Lord provided him strength that sustained him despite those troubles. The table that God prepared for him was one of peace, one of comfort and strength that was available to him even in the midst of his enemies. And so what David is communicating here is that even under all of this strife, even under all of this anxiety and worry, even under all of these people that hate me, I can still experience the goodness of God here at his table. His presence is still everlasting. His bountifulness makes my cup overflow. His goodness is present even in the midst of of all of this strife and all of my enemies. And the table that God has prepared for David is indicative of how God is continuing to care for his ongoing needs that he has. God is preparing things for David. He is honoring him. He is providing him with all he will need now and for the future. And in today's context, when we understand it for a table, God continues to show his love and care through us through the communion table. This table is a way of God providing his ongoing care for us to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as we partake in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine. And so we remember each week at the table what grants us this intimacy with God and Jesus Christ, his perfect life and death on the cross and resurrection. We're reminded that Jesus paid it all for our sins, and we are honored in remembering that we are in fact the sons and daughters of the King through Jesus Christ. And so as David completes the statement here in verse 5 about eating and drinking at the Lord's table, he then transitions here in verse 6 to talk about more eternal matters, eternal needs and eternal claims. He is God's honored guest, but he also recognizes that being God's guest is more than just being a friend or acquaintance that's invited for a night of dinner. He understands that being God's guest is to live with him, to constantly be pursued by him, to always be in his presence, whether it's in this life or in the one to come. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
David is confident that he can count on God's continued favor and provision as he begins to finish up his, his psalm. At the beginning, he stated he shall lack nothing as he was referring to his current needs, but now he's even confident that God will continue to provide in his continued needs as well. In Derek Kidner's uh, commentary on Psalm 23, he refers to the mercy and love, or he defines it for us, and he says, mercy is the covenant word rendered for steadfast love, and together with goodness, it's just a steady kindness that one can count on. And so the Lord's kindness, mercy, and care are overflowing from the Lord and will continue to follow David for the rest of his life. And this word of follow here as well is not like a dog that's following their owner on a walk or a parent following a child as they're taking their first steps so they don't fall down. Following here is more of a a vigorous pursuit as opposed to just walking behind. It's suggesting that God's steadfast love is constantly pursuing David. It's not just at his side, nor is it just trailing behind him. It's constant, it's consistent, it's relentless, and it's intentional, and it's always vigorously pursuing David. Um, In Matthew 18, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And if you want to turn there with me real quick, I think this is... Matthew 18, starting in verse 12. It's the parable of the lost sheep, and I'll just read an excerpt from it. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so you, believer, are not outside of God's sovereignty, love, and care. He is relentlessly pursuing you. He will always follow you, and he will always pour his steadfast love over you. And how often do we believe that God's goodness and and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives? Do we live in light of a God that's constantly and consistently gracious to his people? Again, as I referred to in in John 10, we see uh, Jesus declare that he is the good shepherd and he will lay down his life for his sheep. And this is the greatest act of love and how we know what love is. And so we know his love surpasses all understanding and is most demonstrated in him sending his son Jesus to lay down his life for us. We can be confident that God's goodness and mercy will follow us because of Christ's eternal sacrifice on the cross. And because of this sacrifice, we share an eternity with God, a fact that David ends his psalm by recognizing He looks towards the perfection that is in the future state, knowing that he will be in the presence of God, both in his future reality and into the one, uh, the next one. And he says, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is completed and reflecting on his current needs, and he's now reflecting on eternity. He pictures himself as a permanent residence in God's house, confident that his goodness, love, and care will be with him every day. He's expecting ongoing opportunities of intimate fellowship with the Lord. 
He's showing that he's not just confining himself to the earthly pleasures or comforts, but that his eyes are fixed on heaven to have permanent fellowship with the Lord. He's not looking forward to filling his belly with more food. He isn't looking forward to the end of his battles. He isn't looking forward to more riches. He's not even looking for the years to come where he's not under this strife and doesn't have to rule a kingdom. No, he is firmly locked in on God, taking in the great importance and value of him above all things and recognizing that he is the greatest prize in his life. And as believers, we possess an eternal residence with God. And once God has chosen you, there's nothing that can separate you from him. We are eternally his children, eternally his prize. We are his most beautiful creation. We are his sheep that have gone astray. And so this is our life, Christian. This is who God will be to you. This is how he will support you. This is how he will bring you to glory. God provides for all of our felt needs. He continues to provide ongoing care through the provision of his perfect word, his Holy Spirit, the remembrance of his sacraments at the table. And he will care for our eternal needs, providing us a permanent residence with him in heaven and in his kingdom. God cares for everything in our lives, both the things we realize and many of the things that we don't. We as believers like David should have confidence in the provision and care of the Lord, knowing that not even a centimeter of our lives is not within his grasp. And so my encouragement to you, Christian, is not to let circumstances change how you think God is viewing you or interacting with you. God's presence is constant. He's not just there in certain seasons. He's not just there when you're practicing good spiritual disciplines. He's not just there when you feel like you need him the most. He is constant despite our circumstances, despite our own individual pursuit of holiness, and despite our own recognition of our need for him. Even consider the things of this world that we may think are eternal. We think of our jobs, our careers, our friends, our spouses, but not even they are constant. Our jobs will let us down, our friends will let us down, and our spouses inevitably will let us down, but Christ never lets us down. He's always there. He's always present and always showering his blessing and favor upon you. David was the most, was king of the most powerful nation in the world. He had all of the power, all of the wealth, all of the riches he could have ever dreamed of. But he still chose to look upon Christ, to give him the glory and to know that all of his present, all of his past, all of his future realities are only possible by his grace and provision. And so will you, Christian, have confidence in the Lord's care? Will you be assured of everything he provides? Will you remember the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus in providing the greatest source of love that he could? And will you rejoice in the fact that we as sheep who have gone astray have the good shepherd consistently leading us and guiding us back to himself. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we thank you for your word, your good word that speaks into our lives, Father, and we recognize that we as sheep have gone astray. We wander, we are prone to wander, but you, Father, you are our good shepherd. You consistently lead us 
back to you. You consistently give us paths to walk on, to see you. You comfort us. You give us more than what we've asked for, God. And we praise you and give you the glory for everything. For everything in this life is not the things that we've accomplished or we've done or that we've attained, God. It is all through your love and provision. And so we thank you for the words of Psalm 23, and we thank you for this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.